The 10 days of repentance, beginning with Rosh Hashanah and culminating in Yom Kippur, are amazing days. The Talmud tells us that when the verse in Scripture says we should seek out God when He is available, when He is around us, when He's close to us, that is referring to the 10 days of repentance. The whole year, the Almighty is not so close to us, or He's less close to us. The days spanning from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur are the days where God is amongst us. He is close to us. Later on, he won't be close to us, but now he is close to us. And these are critical days that we must maximize. These are days replete with opportunity that we should make the most of. This is the beginning, of course, of the year. And we are going to set the course for the year upcoming. These are the days that we focus on ourselves, where we're holding, get an accounting, Zoom out, look at the 50,000-foot view. What are our goals? How are we doing in our journey? What do we need in order to really supercharge our efforts? What are the things that are inhibiting us? And what do we do? What do we strategize to try to sidestep them? These are the days when we can truly transform ourselves to accomplish a lot in realigning our life and focusing on self-improvement and refinement. These are days that are more potent, more propitious for that than any other days. Of course, the 10 days of repentance are bookended by the days of judgment, Rosh Hashanah, and the day of mercy and atonement, Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah, the fate is going to be written, inscribed. Yom Kippur, it's going to be sealed, and the continuous thread strung throughout these days, of course, is repentance. Now, in the past, we've spoken about the seven wonders of repentance. Today, we're going to revisit that subject and add the eighth wonder of repentance. There was a really famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective, I think it's called Highly Effective People, And then it was such a smashing bestseller. So he says, well, actually, there's the eighth habit of highly effective people. So we're going to do the same. There were seven wonders of repentance. Now we're going to have the eighth wonder. Repentance is, in fact, quite wondrous for many reasons, as we shall see. The Talmud tells us in the book of Sachem, page 54a, that there are seven things that were created before the world was created. And it's a very unusual list. It starts off with Torah. And then it talks about repentance. Ganeden, paradise, Gehenom, purgatory, the throne of God, the holy temple, and the name of Messiah. These seven things, the Talmud tells us, were all created before the world was created. That's a very unusual list, a very eclectic list, and it's not so clear what is the common denominator. Perhaps we can suggest that these seven themes are all so supernatural and wondrous that they cannot be created once the world has been created. They so thoroughly violate the rules of this world that if the Almighty were to create the world first with all its limitations— and its fixed strictures, once those are set in place, these seven themes cannot be created. 
And therefore, they have to precede the world before all those rules are set into place because once the world would be created, it would be too late. There's something really unique about these seven things. Something so wondrous, so defined of the rules of the world, they had to precede it. And of course, number two on this list is repentance. It's so unique. It's so special. It's so supernatural. It's so wondrous. It preceded the world. Now for us, repentance, it's kind of that time of year. Wake me up when these festivals end. I always feel bad for people that have real jobs. Okay, wait, so Monday and Tuesday, and then Monday and Tuesday, and then Thursday and Friday, and then a whole month, you're kind of, you can't work. What's going on over here? A lot of people feel like, you know, I can't wait for the season to end. We'll start the winter, and we'll be able to really focus on life. I have to be in shul the whole time. We got to do all these prayers. It's difficult to be a penitent. Repentance, really thinking about yourself, really examining yourself really taking an inventory of who you are and what you're doing and what you're living for. It's a bit terrifying. It's a bit scary. Change, of course, of any type. Even conceptual change. It's terrifying. We abhor change. We're frightened by it. We feel uneasy. We feel destabilized. It's kind of a, it's kind of a scary idea. Repentance is a scary word. But I think once we discover how amazing it is and how wondrous it is and how it's an incredible gift that the Almighty afforded for us, I think it may help us make these days more meaningful and potent. The classic book on repentance, the authoritative work on repentance, authored by Rabbeinu Yonah, Sha'are Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance, begins with the following line. Of all the gifts, or amongst the gifts, that the Almighty bestowed upon His creations, among them is that He prepared the path for them to ascend from the lowliness of their behavior. And they can escape from the snare of their mistakes and misdeeds. And they could spare their soul from the destruction that comes as a result of the soul being damaged. And they could remove themselves. They could save themselves from suffering the Almighty's wrath. Repentance is one of the biggest gifts that the Almighty gave us. Think of it as a gift. Maybe the packaging is a little scary. It's a little bit uneasy. We'd wish we could just, you know, forget about it and just move on and not think about it. But hopefully, once we understand, we unpack the gift and understand how wondrous it, in fact, is, I think we'll be much more eager to partake in this very important and critical order of the day of the 10 days. And we're going to focus on the wonder of it, what makes it so unique, Why is it so unprecedented that it must precede the world? And we have a list. It's the eight wonders of repentance. There are eight. Maybe there are, in fact, more. Maybe next year we could do the nine or the ten or the twelve wonders of repentance. But today we're going to have eight aspects that display, that show us why it's so novel. And it's so skewed in our favor 
that I think learning about it will make us more interested in the subject and will make our 10 days more efficacious. So let's begin. Wonder number one. Repentance works. Repentance cleanses. In our world, doesn't really exist. Once the world is created, you do something, the action cannot be undone. Maybe you could feel bad about it, you could rectify it, you can mend it, but you cannot undo it. And the Rambam tells us in the Laws of Repentance, Hachuva mechaperes al kol haaveros. Chuva, repentance, atones, cleanses for all sins. Afilu rasha kolyamav. Even someone was a, a sinner, a wicked person, their whole lives, every day. Ve'asa chuva ba'achrona. And they repented at the very end of their lives. Ein mastirim lo shum davamirisho. When he gets to heaven and they have an audience with the heavenly tribunal, none of their previous wickedness is going to be mentioned. Tshuva, repentance, cleanses so thoroughly, it removes any remnant, any even scar, so to speak, of the previous misdeed. When we fix, maybe a little bit of the Star lingers. When the mighty fixes, when the mighty atones, when he forgives, there is absolutely no baggage. We can be totally cleansed from our previous misdeed. And our commentators explain the mechanism. Repentance allows a person to swap identities, to change identities. When you change, when you follow the rules of repentance, you do it. You are, in effect, creating a new person. Can you imagine someone does a crime? And it's videotaped. And you have their fingerprints. And you have their justification why they would do it. The means. And the reason why they would do it. And you go to the court and say, well, I got a name change. I'm a different person. I swapped my identity. It would never work in our world. But that, in fact, is what repentance is. We can shed our previous identity and say, listen, it wasn't me that did the crime. It was my doppelganger. I don't know who did that crime. Someone did the crime. It wasn't me. I'm a different person. That's the power. That's the wonder of repentance. Now, the Talmud tells us that if someone sins and says, ah, I'm not worried about this. Because I know that Yom Kippur will come around, the 10 days of repentance will come around, and then I'll repent, and then I'll be cleansed. For such a sin, Yom Kippur doesn't work. And the reason is because it doesn't allow for the mechanism to work. The whole mechanism, this, this is a different person. If this person is the same person, because when they did the sin, they were thinking about Yom Kippur, I'll just repent then, and now it's Yom Kippur, and that. Saying, I'll repent now. It's the same person. There's no change. And that's why someone who says, I'm going to sin and Yom Kippur will cleanse, Yom Kippur won't work for such a person. But for someone that does do repentance and they do it sincerely, 
and they genuinely regret what they did, and they commit to never do it again, and they confess. They change their behavior. Such a person, in the eyes of God, is a different person and therefore has no association with the previous behavior. Now for us, this doesn't seem to be so supernatural, so unprecedented. Because for us, a lot of this is, you know, theoretical, it's abstract. But once we learn that a sin is so real, it's a violation of the will of God. It's a blemish. In the words of our sages, it creates an angel, a prosecutorial angel. It creates a barrier, it creates distance between us and God. And God does not forego violations. Kal ha'omer, whoever says that, God says, well, just forget about it, is wrong. To sin is to rebel against God. It's an act of mutiny. Truthfully, every sin should warrant us being executed as treasonous rebels against our Creator. But the Almighty allows us to repent. And if someone repents, it gets cleansed. They've changed their identities. It's a case of mistaken identity. You have the wrong guy. And in fact, the Ram tells us that there is a custom for a person to literally do a name change just to reinforce the commitment of becoming a new person. If the rules of our world were in place, repentance would be infeasible. Truthfully, it is quite wondrous. There's a story I heard recently about one of the great heads of the yeshiva, Rosh Yeshivas, before the war, Rabbi Baruch Ber Leibowitz. He was someone that was always very fastidious not to make any mistakes. And his father was ill, and he was tending to his father. It's one of the most important mitzvahs in the Ten Commandments. You should honor your father and mother. And his father was sick, and he was taking care of him. And he was there all day with his father. And he was extra meticulous and fastidious to take care of every need of his father. And his father passed away. And the great rabbi was beside himself. He felt that he didn't do an adequate job in honoring his father. If you don't honor your father, you're violating one of the most important mitzvahs in the Torah. And he lapsed into deep depression. And everyone tried to say, no, you you did more than anyone else. Didn't work. He came to the Chafetz Chaim and the Chafetz Chaim said, okay, you made a mistake, but you can repent. You can repent. Repentance works. Repentance cleanses. Let's just assume, let's assume that you made a mistake. Okay. It's an egregious mistake. Okay. But repentance works. And he repented. And of course, we would say, was it really a violation? We don't know. But even if there was, he repented. And that cleanses. And you can move on. Repentance is, in fact, quite wondrous. Wonder number two. It works for all people. 
It works for all sins. The Rambam, in chapter 2 of his great work on tshuva, on repentance, tells us, repeats the same theme as he did in chapter 1, even if a person was a sinner their whole life and they did tshuva on their deathbed, and they repented on their deathbed, and they died amidst repentance, all their sins are forgiven. And our sages give us some pretty incredible examples of really wretched and wicked people who repented and whose repentance was accepted. One of them was the king of Judah, Manasseh. Manasseh, he was a son of Chistia, Hezekiah. His father was one of the great heroes of Jewish history. And unfortunately, Manasseh, Chistia's successor, was an idol worshiper. And he worshipped all the idols. And he did all manner of sin. In the words of the Midrash, there was no despicable deed that he did not do. Worshipped all the idols. In fact, even took his own son and brutally sacrificed his own son to Molech, to the idols. And one time he was taken captive. The Assyrians conquered Manasseh and they brought him to Babylon and they were torturing him and they were roasting him on an open fire. And Manasseh began to call out to all his gods, all his idols. And no one came to his aid in his time of need. And then he remembered, he remembered a faint memory of what his father told him when he was little. A verse in scripture, when things are difficult for you, and you're being pummeled by your enemies, you should return to Hashem your God. His idols are not helping him. Maybe I should call out to the God of my forefathers. And you know what? If God answers me, great. If not, then I know that he's the same as all my other deities. So Manasseh began to call out to God. And the angels, the ministering angels of God, tried to reject, tried to swipe away all those prayers that it shouldn't enter. Why? Because they wanted him to suffer. After all, he's one of the most wicked villains of all time. But the Almighty said, wait a minute, if I don't accept his repentance, then there's going to be a precedent that there was one person who wanted to repent and it didn't work. So the Almighty says, listen, these angels are, are plugging up all the portals. They're sealing up all the pipelines. I'm going to make a new pipeline. And the Almighty, so to speak, dug a hole underneath his throne of glory and created a special pipeline for the prayers of Anasha and listened to him and accepted his prayer and saved him from his tormentors and brought him back to Jerusalem, to Judah, to his kingdom. 
Menashe was one of the worst kings of our history, yet he repented and his repentance was accepted. And it's not just for the Jewish people that it works for. The Babylonian general who destroyed the temple, Nevuzradin, he was a butcher, the butcher of Jerusalem. Talmud tells us that he got to the temple and he saw blood on the floor of the temple and this was the blood of the prophet Zechariah who was murdered by the Jews. And it was Radin saw the blood, the blood was bubbling, was boiling. And it was Radin said to the priest, what is this blood? Why is there blood here that's simmering on the floor of the temple? And the priest told him, well, it's just the blood of some sacrifice. Just ignore it. But he didn't believe them. He says, okay, let's bring some animals. Let's compare the bloods. They brought some sacrifices and the blood, it wasn't the same blood. And then he threatened them. He says, tell me where this blood comes from. If not, I'm going to flay you. And they told him, this is the blood of a prophet and a priest, Zechariah. And he was prophesying to the Jewish people that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And the people didn't want to hear that. So they killed him. And nothing that we could do to make this blood stop bubbling. It's been hundreds of years. So Nebuchadnezzar said, I will make it stop bubbling. And he began to slaughter Jews by numbers never seen before. He slaughtered sages and young babies and priests, Kohanim. The blood did not stop bubbling. Talmud says, and this number is actually confirmed by the other sources, he killed almost a million people. Until finally he said, Zechariah, he just talked to the deceased prophet. Do you want me to kill everyone? What do you want? And right away the blood stopped bubbling. And then it was Rod and said, wait a minute. Think about how much destruction was brought for the murder of one person. Look what I just did. I murdered almost a, I killed almost a million people. What will be with me? And he repented. And he abandoned his army. And he, in fact, converted. Even the butcher of Jerusalem, his repentance, to be accepted. And Naaman, his repentance was accepted. No matter how far someone may be, no matter how vile their behavior may be, so long as someone is alive, repentance is still feasible. Now the truth is, if someone is a real terrible sinner, they'll have to do a lot of that process on their own, The Almighty won't aid them in their quest for repentance. But repentance is open for all. And if someone says, well, I'm not a worthy candidate. Trust me, you are. 
Repentance works for all sins for all people. No matter how far you may have strayed, no matter what your previous life may have been like, repentance is still possible. That is important to note, just for the sake of accuracy, there are some sins that we cannot completely repent for in this world. So God forbid if someone murdered someone, there's no way for them to undo that because they can't bring the person back to life. So there are some sins that are such a corruption that it cannot be straightened out. But for the most part, all repentance, certainly for sins against God, sins against other people is a different subject. For sins against God, repentance is still possible. Wonder number two. Wonder number three is that it's not all or nothing. You don't have to finish your paperwork on your new identity to garner the benefits. Full repentance is comprised of four parts. You have to stop what you're doing, number one. You have to regret what you did, number two. You have to commit to never do it again, number three. And finally, there is confession, there is vidui. That is complete repentance. Here's wonder number three. If someone has a fluttering sensation of repentance, they're not doing the whole cumbersome four steps of stopping the transgression and regretting it and committing to never do it again and confessing. They just have a feeling. I feel bad what I did. The Midrash says, just a flutter, a sensation, a scintilla of repentance in your heart right away brings a person all the way before the throne of, of God. The verse says, we read it, of course, on the Shabbos between Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, Shabbos Shuvah. Shuvah Yisrael, repent, O Israel, ad Hashem Elokecha, all the way till Hashem your God. The smallest movement of repentance right away ushers a person into the audience of God. The Talmud, in the book of Kiddushin, on page 49b, is talking about people that do conditional marriage ceremonies. So someone says, listen, I want to I marry you, but I want to make a condition. Mar- our marriage is valid on condition that I am a mighty person. I'm strong. I'm mighty. How mighty do they have to be for that condition to be fulfilled and for the marriage to be valid? So they don't have to be as, as mighty as Avner, as Abner, or as Yoav, Joab. Rather, they have to be strong enough that their friends are a little bit scared of them. If someone says, marry me, unconditioned, that I'm wealthy, do they have to be Jeff Bezos wealthy? Do they have to be Rabbi Elazar ben Kharsim wealthy? Like Rabbi Elazar ben Azaria wealthy? Or they have to be wealthy enough that people respect them. People in their, in their neighborhood respect them because after all, they're well-to-do. Talmud says, if someone says, marry me on condition that I am righteous. 
Is that marriage valid? This person, look at them. They're a sinner. They're wicked. The Talmud says this marriage is valid. Why? Because even if they're wicked, even if they're a sinner, perhaps they had a fluttering feeling of repentance in their heart. One small thought of repentance, not the whole cumbersome four steps, that is enough to effectuate a person being transformed from being a wicked person into being a tzaddik. You know, we have other mitzvahs that are comprised of four parts. You have the tzitzis, for example. Or tefillin, the tefillin on the head. Four compartments, each one with its own scroll. The tzitzis, four corners. Each corner has the tzitzis, the strings. Let's say someone only has a three-cornered tzitzis or three compartments on their tefillin. They haven't fulfilled 75% of the mitzvah. They have 0% of the mitzvah because it's got to be four corners. It's got to be four compartments. You three, it's nothing. Repentance is not like that. If someone says, you know what? I regret. I regret what I did. But they haven't stopped it. They haven't committed to never do it again. They haven't repented. Nevertheless, they have a little bit of repentance. Each one of these four on their own is its own element of repentance, and it works. And that's pretty wondrous. It's not all or nothing. You know, the symbol of repentance is the shofar. And the unique characteristic of the shofar is that, you know, there are there are openings on either side, but in one opening it's really tiny. And then the sound, the vibrations travel through the shofar. And then once they, they exit the shofar, it's actually quite wide. That's the symbolism of repentance. Someone invests a little bit. They take a small step. They do one of the little things of repentance. What emerges is actually quite broad. We take a small step. We take a small first step. What that actually impacts is quite expansive. If you could just get the blast through the small part of the shofar, just the, the beginning, the sound will emerge on the broad end. That small input would result in a wonderful and deep and intimate connection with the Almighty and restoration of this relationship. Every little bit counts. Wonder number three. Wonder number four is that repentance cannot be undone and invalidated with recidivism. You can't annul repentance with the return to past behavior. You know, this is not, uh, this is not our first rodeo. This is not our first repentance season. Not a first Rosh Hashanah, not a first Yom Kippur. And for some of us, it feels like, you know, last year we did this, and we did it the year before, and the year before. And we tried to repent, and we tried to regret, and we tried to process the prayers and the 
confession and do it properly. And then right after Yom Kippur ends with the sound of the shofar, we're finally done. I'll see you in a year. We kind of lapse back into our previous behavior. It seems like a sham. I remember one year at the end of Yom Kippur, one of the people said, I was sitting right next to him in shul, oh, the happiest time of the year. I don't have to deal with this for another whole year. Immediately, they snap back into their previous self. Now, I don't know if the person actually repented or not, but let's assume someone did repent. Someone did feel bad and, and did take a step towards God and did regret and did try to stop what they were doing and did the confession properly. But it didn't last. Maybe it lasted, you know, a day or two after Yom Kippur. But ultimately, they went back to the previous behavior. And you may think, well, obviously, you know, two days later, I lapsed back into previous behavior. That maybe would invalidate the repentance. But no, once it's done, it's irreversible. The cleansing of a person is done and fixed. In the words of the Rambam, very powerful Verbiage. Umahi atshuva. What is tshuva? What is repentance? Hu sheyazov hachoteheto. The sinner abandons their sin. Viyasir machshavto. And he should remove from his mind. Viyirgimor belibo. And he should commit in his heart. Shalo yaaseu od. He will not do it again. And he should regret on the past. And then, these are the critical words. Viyaid alav yodet halumos. And God, the knower of the hidden things, will testify about this person at the moment of repentance. That he will not return to this sin forever. With repentance is cleansing. And at the moment of repentance, there is an assumption. There is a testimony by God that this person will never lapse into the previous behavior. And the commentaries tell us that actually they don't. Repentance is actually permanent. But what happens after Yom Kippur? The Almighty empowers the Yetzirah anew, and there's a stronger Yetzirah, and that's what gets a person to do new sins. It's not them going back to their previous self. It's a new challenge. post Repentance blunders do not call into question the efficacy of the repentance. If you repented every year, you're cleansed. And regardless of whether or not you adhere to those resolutions, the dirt and the corruption and the corrosion of sin are gone forever. Pretty Wondrous. Wonder number five really takes us to a new level. And that is that the penitent leapfrogs. He elevates above even the completely righteous. 
There's a very surprising Talmud in the book of Brachos, page 34b. Makram Shabbalei Tshuva Omdim, in the place where the Baalei Tshuva, where the penitents are standing in relationship to God. Tzadikim Gemurim Enam Omdim, even the completely righteous who have never sinned cannot stand. So you would think, listen, someone's a sinner and they repented. Well, the Almighty wondrously forgives those sins. But you know what's even better? Someone who never sinned to begin with. They never damaged their relationship with God. They never distanced themselves from God. They never created barriers for them and God. They're even better. That's what we would all have guessed. But no, the place where the Bali Tshuva, the penitents stand, even the completely righteous who have never sinned cannot stand. Again, back to the words of the Rambam. This is from chapter 7, halacha number 4. A person who's a Bali Tshuva, who's a, a penitent, he should not think that he is distant from the levels of the tzaddikim of the righteous because of their sins or due to their sins and iniquities that they have done. Ein hadavartein, the matter is not so. Ela'ohuv, they are beloved and cherished before God as if they never sinned at all. Moreover, their reward is even greater because they have tasted the taste of sin and have departed from it and have conquered their Yetzirah. And he quotes the Talmud, Ma'akam Shabbat Tshuva Omdim, in the place where the Bali Tshuva stand, Ein Tzadikim Gemurim Yecholim La'amod Ba. Even the complete Tzadikim cannot stand there. The Talmud tells us that on Rosh Hashanah, the Almighty opens three books. One book is for the completely wicked. A second book is for the completely righteous. And the third book, well, that's for the in-betweeners. People who are somewhere between completely righteous and completely wicked. And the Mahdi surveys the souls of these people and their behavior and every deed and every thought and every action and every word and the completely righteous are signed into book number one right away for life. And the completely wicked are signed right away for death. And the in-betweeners, well, they're, they're put in book number three. We wait to see what happens through Yom Kippur. If they are meritorious, they get life. If they are not meritorious, they get death. That's the Talmud the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 16b. And the question has been raised. You have three books. But really, two should suffice. There's some extra books. Unnecessary paperwork. You have the righteous and the wicked. And then the in-betweeners, we have to determine which book they're going to end up in. So why is there a third book for the in-betweeners? Just do two books 
for the righteous and for the wicked, and we'll decide when we know the answer where the in-betweeners end up in this book or in that book. And the Hasidic masters say something very powerful. In the place where the Bali Tshuva, where the penitents stand, the completely righteous cannot stand. And therefore, if someone is an in-betweener, they're partially righteous, partially wicked. But then they repent. They don't belong in the same book as the completely righteous. They don't stand in the same place. Because the penitents are, in fact, loftier than the completely righteous. They are in a class of their own, and it will be improper to place them in the same book. That's how powerful repentance is. It actually takes a person not just back to square one, but they leapfrog the completely righteous. Back to the Rambam. Chapter 7, Halacha number 6. Gedola tshuva, great is tshuva, repentance. It brings a person close to the divine presence. If a person returns and repents, they will cleave to God. It takes those that are distant from God and bring them closer to God. Yesterday, prior to repentance, the sinner was despised by God, was disdained, was an abomination before God. But now, post-repentance, He's beloved. He's he's cherished. He's close. He is a friend of God. And this goes even further. If someone repents out of love of God, those previous sins get reclassified as mitzvos. And this might be the mechanism for how someone who repents actually leapfrogs the completely righteous. Someone does half a million sins, half a million mitzvos. And then they repent out of love. Well, now all those sins get added to the 500,000 mitzvos, and they have a, they're a mitzvah millionaire. The repentance actually reclassifies those sins as mitzvos. The Kabbalists tell us that a penitent in Hebrew is called a Baal tshuva. Baal means, it means husband. Husband of tshuva. It's kind of an unusual, unusual name. The Kabbalists explain is that there's actually some progeny that's created here. The penitent is the husband, and the repentance is the wife, and they produce progeny, and those progeny are mitzvos, those new mitzvos that are spawned from repentance. In fact, there's a precedent for that. Noah, these are the children of Noah. Chapter 6, verse 9 of Genesis, Noah was righteous. Our tell us over there that the true 
progeny of the righteous are their mitzvos. Baal Tshuva, the husband, is the penitent. And the wife is repentance. And the children spawned are mitzvos. Wonder number five. A penitent doesn't just get back to ground zero. They ascend and leapfrog the righteous. Wonder number six is that repentance can be done from a distance. What I mean by that is that if you think about it, someone's repenting. They're trying to fix the damage of their sins. Well, where is that damage? So we would think, well, the damage is in a person, in their soul. But the truth is that a sin creates nuclear fallout that damages the whole world. And it even damages the heavenly spheres. And you may think that if the damage is so widespread, the repentance would have to be at a distance. But wonder number six tells us that repentance can happen long distance. The verse in Devarim, in Parshas Nitzav that we just read, it's talking about a mitzvah that's not far from you, that's not beyond you, it's not in the heavens, it's not across the sea, it's close to you, it's exceedingly close to you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart to do it. Which mitzvah is this? So the Ramban tells us this is the mitzvah of repentance. Repentance is close. And Reb Chaim Volajner says, what does it mean repentance is close? It's not in the heavens. What does, it, what does it mean it's not in the heavens? When someone does a sin, it creates damage across the sea. It creates damage up in the heavens. But repentance does not have to be across the sea and up in the heavens. Where you are, where you're standing, in your mouth, in your heart to do it, that repentance can actually fetch all the damage, wherever it may be, and fits it remotely. A sin has fallout that permeates the world over. Someone that's a sin in the United States, there is, perhaps an imperceptible for us, but there is an impact felt in New Zealand. If someone violates the Shabbos in Lithuania, then someone in Paris is going to feel the effects. Therefore, you may think, well, i got to travel all over the world to fix the damage where it's at. But wonder number seven tells us that repentance is not like that. You don't need to go to the heavens. You don't need to go across the sea from wherever you are. Repentance can work its magic remotely. Wonder number seven is the day of repentance. There's one day a year 
It's designated for repentance. Of course, we can repent every day of the year. And ideally, when someone makes a mistake, they should repent right away. But there is a day that's designated for purity and for expiation of sin. On this day, the Almighty wants to purify us, to cleanse us from all our misdeeds. On this day, repentance is the order of the hour. The Almighty wants to cleanse us, but we have to repent. And of course, the Ramam tells us in the times of the temple, when someone would sin, part of their repentance process was to bring a sacrifice and to go to the temple and to do the confession. But today we don't have a temple. We don't have sacrifices. We don't have that way of atoning. But we have repentance. And that works the whole year round. But Yom Kippur, that day, there's extra cleansing for the penitents. Now, if you think about it, there's a little bit of a, of a problem with this idea. Because repentance, we have learned, is efficacious every day. And Yom Kippur works, but only if you are a penitent. But if you're a penitent, even if it's not Yom Kippur, it should work. So what's the what, what actually makes Yom Kippur unique? And the answer is that Yom Kippur is an accelerant. If someone wants to repent the whole year round, they have to find all their misdeeds and repent to each one individually. What happens in Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is the day where a small bit of repentance in one area can actually permeate and spread to every other area that we need. If you think about it, you know, if we're honest to really assess our character and to really figure out where we're holding and to really evaluate the state of our soul and really consider we where we are in our national and individual mission of trying to bring God into the world and allow God to rule over us, where are we? If we're honest, we'll say there's a ton of areas that we need to work on, that we need to fix. And if you try to do it all in Yom Kippur, it's really hard because there's a million different things that we need to fix. And it's only one day. But the Ramam tells us the Yom Kippur provides atonement for those who are penitents. What that means is Yom Kippur atones for everything as long as we are penitents in something. If we come on this day and we transform ourselves into returners, then Yom Kippur will finish the job and will afford us complete atonement. 
if we are on a path of repentance, in the heavenly court, it's as if we have finished it. Our sages have told us that on Yom Kippur, everyone should make a small resolution. It's a tiny resolution. And that will effectuate complete expiation and atonement for all of our misdeeds. And the reason is because Yom Kippur is a day of alchemy, a day where we can turn into gold. But we have to do one thing concrete on this day. And once we do that one thing, we are already included in the group of people that are penitents. And once you are a penitent, even in a small way, Yom Kippur itself will atone. If we are people who want to be close to God, who want to be purified, who want to be cleansed, who want to restore our relationship with our Creator, and we take a step, it may be a small step, but it's a significant step, that extrapolated over a lifetime will result in us getting closer to the Almighty. Once we are a returner, Yom Kippur will work its magic. And that's wonder number seven. And finally, the eighth wonder, the eighth wonder of repentance is that fair weather repentance works just as well. The Almighty desires a relationship with us. He created us and loves us more than we love ourselves. And every bad thing that happens to us is quite likely to be the Almighty trying to get our attention to restore our relationship. He's throwing curveballs our way to get us to repent. And we don't want those bad things to happen to us. So we listen. And we try to repent. That repentance may be maligned as insincere. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. You don't really care about a relationship with the Almighty. You would just want salvation. You want good health. You want a favorable judgment. You want a good year. You want to end your suffering. And that's why we repent. And maybe if this was another human at the other side of this transaction, they would say, well, you're Johnny come lately. This is not sincere. You're doing this for the wrong reasons. But even though we're doing it for the wrong reasons, the Almighty accedes. He loves us like a parent loves a child. And his right hand, so to speak, is extended to accept penitence. And if we take one step, one small step, he will eagerly reach out to embrace us. So repentance is quite wondrous indeed. Wonder number one, repentance cleanses us from sin. And what emerges is a brand new person, 
someone that is not associated at all with the previous misdeed. And one number two tells us that no matter how far, how egregious we may be, repentance works. Wonder number three tells us that although repentance is comprised of four different parts, it's not all or nothing. Every bit, even a small fleeting thought of repentance, it all counts. Wonder number four tells us that recidivism cannot undo repentance. Wonder number five tells us that repentance catapults the penitent to the highest place in God's proximity even higher, even closer than the completely righteous. Wonder number six tells us that you don't need to fix all the damage that you brought about. The damage may be in the heavens. The damage may be across the sea. But where you are, in your mouth, in your heart, you repent there, they might as well do the rest. Number seven is the amplification of repentance that we do on Yom Kippur. And wonder number eight even though there is a lot in it for us. And we may be viewed as being insincere. That does not detract from the power and efficacy of our repentance. Now's the time. And while we may have had a tortured relationship with repentance in the past, we now know that we have a tremendous gift, one of the best gifts of all the gifts. Something so out of this world that if this world was already extant, it could not have been created. Only before the world was even created can something so wondrous be brought into existence. And now are the 10 days to use this incredible divine gift. And as we mentioned, this only works for crimes against God. Crimes against man, we have to secure their forgiveness. But for all of our souls, maladies, and imperfections, and blemishes, these ten days are the days. As the verse tells us, call out to God when he's close. Now he's close. His hand is extended to us. He's hoping that we make a move. And when we take that small step, he will help us get to the finish line. May we all merit to utilize this tremendous gift and this powerful tool and this wondrous gift of the Almighty of repentance and cleanse ourselves and purify ourselves and purge ourselves of any misdeeds. If we have something between us and our fellow man, go over to them, get secure their forgiveness. May we all be inscribed in the book of life. May we all be sealed in the book of life. May this year be the incredible best year of all. For us, for all of our brethren, it should be a happy, healthy, sweet new year for all of us. A year of great health and great prosperity and great joy and blessing and goodness in all that we do. As always, my email address is rabbiwolby 
at gmail.com.